You know, it was over 30 years ago when in a book I was reading, I happened to read a definition of home that I never forgot. It says, home is where if you go, they have to take you in. <laughs> and you know, last night when I stepped in for the 6 o'clock service, I felt very much at home. I had to run up to the PowerPoint station up there, and Corinne Cadenouche was there welcoming me, got all the changes done, walked into the green room out there, and the people welcomed me as well. So it is really glad to be home again. And on behalf of Sham, she just was so looking forward to this weekend, but she's been sick with the flu for the last five or six days. And though she's turned a corner today, she certainly expresses her regrets. So thank you so much for the privilege once again of sharing God's word with you. You know, I've had the privilege of preaching and teaching God's word from very shortly after I became a Christian at the age of 17. And therefore, whenever I do this, I always uh, feel a combination of both gratitude to God as well as a deep and profound sense of unworthiness. I'm thankful for all the people who pray for me regularly. And, but perhaps never more so than when I step into this pulpit, because kind of this has been holy ground for me for 36 years. And so I just come in exactly that same frame of mind again this morning. Uh, you're in the midst of a series called Reflections, and what's happening during that series is that each person who's speaking is focusing on a passage of Scripture that God has repeatedly brought them again for a specific purpose. And so... I want to speak to you this morning from Isaiah chapter 40. And, and as I do, you can either follow me on the overhead or in your reading devices, uh, on your Bibles if you still bring them. But there's a couple of purposes I think that this message will serve. First of all, uh, you will get to see why this passage of Scripture has been so meaningful and significant for me. Why the Spirit has kept on bringing him back, because that's one of the goals of the series. But secondly, it will also flesh out and provide content for that three-word title for this message, Behold Your God. In a sense, this entire service is all about that. Actually, the sermon is really pressed into service of what's going to happen after I have finished speaking. So, uh, that's my pr- pr- uh, prayer as I've been coming this morning. Let me take you back to December 1962. Three months before that, in September, I had my first encounter with the gospel at the Youth for Christ retreat. Uh, I attended the retreats, monthly retreats in October and November, but December 1962 was my first visit to a church. I uh, happened to go to the church at that time where um, uh, Ravi and Sham's family were worshipping, and it was a Christmas Eve service. And fairly early in the service, a Welsh tenor by the name of Willis Griffin got up, and he sang the opening arias from Handel's Messiah, uh, Comfort ye my people, and every valley shall be exalted. Now you have to know that at that time, the only music I'd ever listened to was English and Hindi pop music. That was it. I knew nothing about any classical music, especially Western classical music, nor sacred oratorios. I'd never heard of the book of Isaiah or Handel's Messiah. I did not know that that month I was going to begin a journey that seven months from then will bring me to the feet of Jesus. I had no idea that preaching was going to become the central calling of my life. And I had absolutely no idea that those two opening areas were from a chapter that was quintessentially written by the Holy Spirit to keep preachers at their task. For decade after decade after decade. I knew none of those things. So by the way, before we even open the chapter, there's the first dimension of God I want you to behold. The God who knows where you are and is able to bring a specific portion of his word into your life. Through a totally unfamiliar medium and begin a work in you that you're totally unconscious of. And that long before you even knew God. That's the God we serve. It's worth reading again. Behold your God who knows where you are. And is able to bring a specific portion of his word into your life through a totally unfamiliar medium. And begin a work in you that you are totally unconscious of. And that long before you even knew that God. I want to believe that that's happening today in some people's lives. That's the God that we serve. 
Now, what's the setting of Isaiah chapter 40? Which is what we're going to look at. Well, biblical Israel reached its zenith under the rule of King David. Well, David's son Solomon had a divided heart, and so the kingdom split, or the people of Israel split into two. Ten, the ten northern tribes formed the tribe of Israel, and the two southern tribes formed the tribe of Judah. Together they completely failed in their God-given task, which was to image the glory of Yahweh through their worship of God and through their obedience to his incredibly wise laws. Instead, they capitulated, they became identical to the people around them, both in their idolatrous worship, the immorality that accompanied it, as well as their wholesale neglect of social justice, the neglect of the poor and the orphan and the widows. They refused the repeated preaching of the prophets. They refused to repent and recover their original mission, and eventually they were sent into exile. The northern kingdom went into exile in approximately 720 BC, captured by Assyria, and over 200 years later, because there were a few good kings in Judah, Babylon, that had become the superpower, now exiled them into Babylon. And there they were for about 80 years. The first 39 chapters of Isaiah were actually a snapshot of this descent into exile. Ignoring the preaching of Isaiah for decades, who was calling them to commit themselves back to the Holy One of Israel. Judah in exile was in a wilderness. No land, no king, no temple. And their destiny to bless the nations completely wiped out. All of a sudden the mood changes in chapter 40. And chapters 40 to 66 are uniquely set up to bring comfort to a people in the wilderness. And so Isaiah begins by saying this, the opening words. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. God tells Isaiah to comfort the very people that he had called him to confront over this long period of time. The repetition of the word comfort is a literary device to emphasize a particular concept. He also tells him to do it tenderly, which in the original language either means from your heart or to your heart. Therefore, they were to be comforted in such a way they would actually feel that comfort in their hearts. It's in the present continuous tense. Keep on doing it, Isaiah, until it descends from their head to their hearts. Not only does he tell them how to comfort, he also tells them what to say. He said, first of all, he calls them my people. In other words, he reinforces the fact that they still are the covenant people of God. Their rebellion, no matter how long it took, didn't break that covenantal relationship with God. They were still his people. He also said, tell them that their warfare is over. Now, they were not in any warfare with human beings. They were a captured people. He was talking about their warfare with God. He says, I'm not at enmity with them. I'm not against them. I am for them. Tell them that, Isaiah. He says. And then thirdly, he says, tell them that they've received double for their sins. Most likely it is referring to the folding of a piece of paper in exact half so that one half completely covers the other. Which becomes a beautiful picture of the pardon that God has given to them saying, the measure of your iniquity is the measure of the pardon that I've given to you. This was the message of comfort. What does this tell us about God? After all, this whole sermon is about beholding God, right? Well, you know, growing up, uh, raising two children... Uh, that God gave us, we had to sometimes discipline them. And, but honestly, even though they didn't believe me, it always hurt me more than it hurt them. And I always longed for the time and looked forward to the time after the discipline when I would take them into my arms, comfort them once again, talk and establish forgiveness, rebuild the relationship, and do some fun things together. Most of us as parents know that. 
That's exactly the picture it is portraying to us of God. Because the second thing I want you to behold about God. His fundamental stance towards you is that he's not at enmity with you. He's not against you but for you. You still belong to him as his people. And he will never disown you. Yes, he may discipline you at times for persistent disobedience. But his last word to you is always comfort. Can I read that again? Because some of you today may be in that situation where you are experiencing the discipline of God. For violating his clear standards. And sometimes the discipline can last for a while. And so you need to know this again. His fundamental stance towards you is that he's not at enmity with you. He's not against you but for you. You belong to him as his people. And he will never disown you. Yes, he may discipline you at times for persistent disobedience. But his last word is always comfort. And that's the call of a preacher. Sometimes to confront in discipline but always to comfort in this way. So Isaiah continues in verses 3 to 5. And this, this was the text from which those two opening areas were taken. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. I told you I grew up in New Delhi, India. So we were part of the Commonwealth. So the Queen was still a constitutional monarch. And so every now and then the Queen would visit India. And she always made sure to come to the capital city. That was always good news for us. Which meant all the potholes in the roads would be filled up. Because she would come along a highway. And those highways would be lined with people. And they would get to see the majesty and the glory of their monarch. If you've been following the news these days. Toronto potholes are featuring a lot. <laughs> yes, Maybe the Queen needs to visit here. Who knows? <laughs> But in all seriousness, this was precisely the image behind Isaiah's use of these words. An unnamed preacher is daring to say, in the midst of Judah in the wilderness, no king, no temple, no land, no mission, and no destiny. Into that wilderness, he dares to say that as I am preaching, a highway is being built. And along that highway, the king will come. Only he's referring to Yahweh. He will come in all of his glory. And he says, you will be comforted and all flesh will see it. In other words, you will also recover your mission that you lost. And he dares to say that because I am preaching, a highway is being built into your heart. And why? Because the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. His ultimate basis for confidence that as he is preaching, this is what is happening is because God has said so. The New Testament applies this text to John the Baptist. There are four biographies of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And while Matthew is the first one in our Bibles, most scholars believe, I think, fairly degree of consensus, the first gospel to be written was Mark. And Mark's gospel opens with these words, the beginning of the gospel, which means good news. What is the beginning of the gospel? A voice crying in the wilderness. It just picks up Isaiah chapter 40, which is where the concepts of the gospel, by the way, are first found in the scriptures. Because now, Israel is still in the wilderness. They're no longer in exile, they're back in their land. But for 500 years after that, captured by Babylon, then the kingdom went over to Medo-Persia, then to Greece, then after a brief respite, Rome took over. And so they're still a people without a king. They're still in exile, they're still in the wilderness. And for 400 years they haven't heard the voice of a prophet. After Malachi there was no prophet for 400 years. Until suddenly out of the wilderness comes this young preacher. Inspired by Isaiah chapter 40. 
A voice crying in the wilderness again. Preaching is once again going to build a highway along which the king of glory is going to come. Only his name is Jesus. And John chapter 1 tells us that, isn't it? The word become flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. And what was true for Isaiah, what was true for John the Baptist, has been true for 2800 years after Isaiah wrote it for everybody who's been called to preach the word, myself included. This has become one of the favorite metaphors of mine for preaching. That's why this is one of my favorite passages. Preaching into the wilderness of people's lives builds a highway along which Jesus himself will come in his glory and thus bring hope and comfort to his people and reestablish their original mission. Can I just say that again? Preaching into the wilderness of people's lives builds a highway along which Jesus himself will travel in his glory and thus bring hope and comfort to his people and reestablish their original mission. The starkest demonstration of this happened in my own life in 1984. Long time I was at Rexdale. I've heard me share this on a couple of occasions, but well worth repetition because it belongs in this context and especially for those who may not have heard or forgot. I resigned my job at Atomic Energy of Canada in 1980 and started preaching here in October of 1980. Summer of 1984, I asked the elders for a leave of absence. My children hadn't even seen one of their cousins, my brother's firstborn, and so I needed a two-month leave of absence Uh, And so they gave me permission to do that. I was not prepared for a massive assault on my faith in my visit back to India. During the six weeks that I was in India, uh, I was faced like in in the midst of what millions looks like. At that time, the population of India was 758 million. Today is 1.3 billion. And every morning as I would walk and pray, I would have to honestly ask God and say, Lord, most of these people will never hear the gospel. And if they did, there's no hope they could understand it. Because my parents at that time had heard the gospel from me for 21 years. Not one, 21 years they'd heard it. And there was no sign of any response at all. And so my hopelessness kept increasing. Along with that, of course, was the confrontation with poverty all around. And by the time September 2nd rolled along, and we were scheduled to come back on September the 3rd, I was pretty well finished. My work at Rexdale for those two and a half years seemed so completely unrelated and irrelevant to the needs of the world, both the lost and the poor. And I, I was probably about a hair's breadth away, seriously considering coming back, submitting my resignation, hope, and hoping that Atomic Energy would give me back my job. Well, Sunday, September 2nd morning was the last Sunday there. We went to church and it did nothing for me. I, I stayed in exactly that same crushed, pessimistic mood. I got home in the evening and I was getting ready to go to evening church. Sam said, I'm going to pack and get ready. So I went by myself. Small church called the Delhi Bible Fellowship. Maybe about 80 to 90 people there. There was a guest speaker that morning, uh, that evening. His name was uh, David Cummings. He was the president of Wycliffe Bible Translators. He got up there and he said, and in those days all the pastors, you remember how long before pastors would sit on the chairs up on the platform? Well, all the pastors in this church are on the platform. So this guy got up and said, today I want to speak to full-time workers. Guess who was that? Because as far as I know, the only full-time worker sitting down there. So I began to kind of set up a bit. And then his next question was, he said, has the joy run out of your life? (laughs) By now I was sitting bolt upright. I knew God was going to speak to me. And then he read from John's gospel. And for those of you who are not familiar with it, it's the first miracle that Jesus did, where the wine had run out in a wedding and the the steward was embarrassed and uh, Jesus turned water into wine. And so he read that story, which John says was the first miracle that Jesus did to demonstrate his glory. And then he made four observations. The first thing he said was, he said, Jesus could have occupied center stage, but he made the servants do the work. Secondly, he said, 
The need was for wine, but he made them fill it with water. What they did seemed totally irrelevant to the need. Uh, That was me, right? That's exactly how I felt. The third thing he said was, without water, only Jesus could turn water into wine, but without water there wouldn't have been any wine. So that work was really significant, which was something else I was wondering about. And then fourthly he said, Jesus saves the best for last. Because as you know, the wine that Jesus made was far better than the other wine they ran out of. And then he told story after story after story of Wycliffe Bible translators that had worked for 10, 15, 20 years without any fruit at all. And then suddenly a huge harvest of people coming into the kingdom. I got up a completely transformed man. I came back here. And as you know, I was here for another 32 years. Over the next, those 32 years, I made 60 trips overseas to 18 different countries, 14 of them back to India. All because, all because the preaching of the word built a highway into the wilderness of my heart, along which the king came in all of his glory, bringing me not only comfort, but recommissioning me to my mission. Can you see why this chapter is my favorite chapter and why God keeps bringing me back to it over and over? And I will never leave Isaiah 40 as long as I preach. That is why I can dare to stand up here and believe and say to you this morning, because the mouth of the Lord has spoken it, that the king is still building a highway into the wilderness. Jesus is traveling today in the greatness of his glory into your lives, bringing you comfort and recapturing you with your mission. Not only did God do this in me, he also so graciously showed me this week a snapshot that he's still doing it through me as well. Only snapshots though, mind you. His goal is never to make us proud, but always humble and dependent on him. I have the permission to share this story in brief. An individual in this congregation sent me an email. She had been in this auditorium 27 years ago listening to a sermon, and even involved in the service in some way. Subsequent events in her life had plunged her into a relational wilderness. For some reason, last September, she felt the urge to go back to that particular, to get the sermon of that particular Sunday. It was September 30th, 1990. It was one of those rare Sundays where I got up to preach and couldn't preach. So I just set aside my prepared sermon and just spoke ad lib for 28 minutes. I remember that. So... God prompted her to track down the thing. They couldn't track it down right away. The timing was so amazing. They got it tracked down this week. She listened to that sermon. And God did exactly this work in her. And he sends me the email last week when I'm ready to prepare this. God delayed her even finding that tape until the testimony could come on the week that I was preaching this word. Are you in any doubt that God wants you to hear this today? I'm in no doubt at all that he wants me to preach it. And still believe it with all of my heart. By the way, what do you think would have happened if I didn't show up in church that Sunday night in India? The entire trajectory of my life would have been different. And to some way, probably this church is. Although God still does His work. So, I want to say to you folks, will you please settle the issue once and for all of whether you're going to come to church on Sundays or not? Settle the issue. I will be here every week to hear God's word preached in the context of worship. Because you never know when the king will build a highway in your heart. You never know when the king of glory is going to show up, bringing you comfort and recommissioning you afresh. You just don't know it, right? So you don't want to miss any of them. And this is not a gimmick to get you there because the highway is being built anyway. It's just that sometimes you see it in a spectacular way. That's all. 
Now, lest we think that this is only for John the Baptist and Isaiah and for preachers like me and others, look at the next verse, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 9. Go up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Now, this time it's not Isaiah that is being told to preach. It's not John the Baptist who preaches later, or Sundar Krishnan. It's Zion, Jerusalem, the people of God. And he said, you go preach to Judah. Toronto, preach to Scarborough. All of us, every single one of God's people, formal and informal, professional and non-professional, if we're part of the people of God, we have the privilege of preaching God's word. And it comes in various ways, not just this. This is just one way. When the worship team got up and led us in the song, and as they will, they will continue to preach. Just as preaching comes worshiping, worship comes preaching. And you heard that last week. That's why when worship leaders choose songs and put things together and rehearse them, remember, you are preaching. You are going to say to the people, behold your God. Life group leaders, when you are walking people through this week, through the text of this scripture, you are preaching God's word. People who are preaching in rush hour and to the youth. People who are teaching in family ministries even now downstairs. As some of you will in the next service. People who are preaching in rush neighborhood connections. Who preach to uh, the Bible hour at uh, the uh, mums arise. Every one of us. This is what can happen. But only if one condition is satisfied. That the essence of what you're saying enables you to say behold your God. It's not ultimately about psychology and philosophy and humanism and secular. All those things belong. But they all have to be laid at the feet of God so that we can lift him up and say, Behold my God. So long as you're doing that, you can say the mouth of the Lord has spoken it and you can dare to believe that a highway is being built into whosoever's lives you're ministering to. And to help us get a glimpse of what this can look like, Isaiah actually in the rest of the chapter does it. He fleshes out, behold your God. And I only have time to touch on a few of those verses. So first of all, verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? And marked off the heavens with a span? And enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure? One verse, three staggering descriptions about God. Let me illustrate the best as I can. This is the hollow of your hand. I think I can hold about 25 cc in here, is my guess. I haven't actually measured it. Looks like the small cup that Sham uses to make all stuff at home. The waters probably refers to the oceans. Now, I want you to imagine what one cubic mile is like. From here to 401 is one mile. Now, imagine that mile in length, that mile in breadth, and that mile in height. That's one cubic mile of water. If that water were to spread out over GTA, it would cover it to two feet. The entire GTA would be covered from one cubic mile. Do you know how much water there is in the five oceans? 320 million cubic miles. And God can hold 320 cubic miles in the hollow of his hand. And he hasn't even started. That's the first staggering picture of God. The second one is unbelievable. He says, he marks off the heaven with a span. This is a span. For my, my small hand, it's eight inches. So I can measure off my hand, four spans, 32 inches, that's my sleeve length for my shirt. But if I had to measure off the circumference of the sanctuary with this, it would be very weary. He says, God, by the way, can measure off the universe with the span of his hand. You want to know how big the universe is? 
Ordinary measures of distance are useless for astronomical purposes. So astronomers develop something called the light year. That's the distance light travels in one year at the speed of 186,240 miles a second. It is six trillion, trillion miles. Six trillion miles. Six followed by 12 zeros miles in one year. That's one light year. The Milky Way galaxy of which we are a part is 100,000 light years in width. That's 100,000 times 6 trillion distance. That's just the Milky Way galaxy and it's one of a billion galaxies. And God can measure it like this. That's just the span of his hand, folks. And then he says he encloses the dust of the earth in a measure. Enclosing, we know what that's like. I say when my wife makes cake, she brings out this white flour and she gets a measuring cup, spoons it and levels it. That's scooping it up in one scoop, in a measure. God can do that with the dust of the earth. Now, I don't know what he referred to by the dust, but 80 million tons of cosmic dust falls into the earth in one year. It's a lot of dust. And if they were, probably didn't know all those things in those years, they were referring to just the mass of the earth. That's, uh, I think, 10 followed by 24 zeros or something like that in terms of in kilogram weight. Whatever it is, it's staggering, and God can scoop it up like someone scooping up a little bit of flour. Put those three things together, you get what a staggering picture you get of God. He can hold 320 million cubic feet in the palm of his hand. He can span billions of light years with his, with his span. And he can scoop up 80 million tons of dust like that in no time at all. And what's true of his size is also true of his knowledge. Verse 14. Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge? And who showed him the way of understanding? I think the study was done in 2003. They estimated the number of unique books in the world. By unique, meaning excluding copies. And they estimated somewhere between 75 million to 175 million books. Now imagine a mind that simultaneously, instantly, and perfectly knows the content of 175 million books. <laughs> and can apply it instantly to anyone, anytime, any place to accomplish his purposes. You haven't even begun to scratch the mind of God. He goes one step further. He illustrates one particular dimension of this knowledge. And he begins by saying, to whom then will you compare me? After this, I think they must have said, yeah, no one. There's no one like you, God. To whom will you compare me that I should be like him? Says God. Hey, I'm not the best. I'm not the greatest. I'm the only. There's no one in this category. It's all by myself just for me. That's what the word holy means. Remember we learned that in a category, in a cut, infinite cut by himself above everybody else. He says, don't bother comparing me with someone. These are just the outer fringes of my abilities here. And then he goes specifically as far as the knowledge part is concerned. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out, the, he's talking about the stars. He who brings out the host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might. And because he is strong in power, not one is missing. How many stars are there? At the time Isaiah wrote it, he probably didn't have a clue. In the Milky Way galaxy alone, there are 100 billion stars. And there are hundreds of billions of galaxies. The total number of stars in the universe is absolutely mind-boggling. So God refers to them as the host. But here's the amazing thing. And he says he knows each one of them by name. I suppose it could mean the Pleiades and the Orion and stuff like that. But I think it's more than that. Name in scripture means character, makeup. He knows every single star in terms of its purposes. 
And then he emphasizes again, not one of them is missing. Now, what, what, what is the point of this emphasis on such staggering knowledge? Certainly it continues the previous picture of God's greatness, but it's even more significant that he emphasizes this huge number that not one is forgotten, not one is missing. You know why? Because in exile, in exile, there is a very real possibility, even a high probability, that we will start asking ourselves questions like this. Does God really know my plight? If he knows it, does God really care? And if he knows and if he cares, does he really have the power to do anything about it? After all, Babylonian gods seem to have thrashed Jehovah in the battles. Remember, they grew up in a theology and a culture where if you win, your God wins. Battles between people were battles between their gods. And it's true for you and me. When, you, when we are in the wilderness, great or small, the same kind of questions can form. Listen, my life is not particularly the wilderness. Probably nowhere near to most people's wilderness experiences. Yet yesterday morning, while I was in the process of preparing and rehearsing a message like this, I was beginning to worry whether God was really noticing me or something area in my life that I was struggling with. <laughs> he said, Sundar, what are you doing? <laughs> what are you doing? What are you going to be speaking to the people this weekend? Not one of them is missing. I know them all by name. That's why the next verses say this. It anticipates this. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, that my way is hidden from the Lord and my right disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? Which is why I have to preach. Because I don't want to stand before God and say, Did you tell the people that you preach who I am? Did you paint this picture of God? Have they not known? Have they not heard? I'll hold you responsible if they haven't. Because I've called you to do it. (laughs) Have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary. And young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. He does know. He does care. He does have the power. But this is the point. This truth will only descend from the head to the heart in, the, in what we call worship. He said, they who wait upon the Lord. Waiting on the Lord is to come into his presence, is to acknowledge these questions. To, he's big enough. That's one reason why we paint such a picture of a big God. There's no question he can't handle that he doesn't know. You're not telling him anything he doesn't know, so tell him anyway. Pour out your heart. It's okay to come to him. And then also follow it up. With worship, the ascription of glory, who he is. That's how you bring him into those situations. And then as you do, you will run and not be weary, walk and not faint, because you will mount up with wings of eagles. And notice the sequence. You mount up first, then you run, and then you walk. It is the exact opposite in the physical life, right? First we learn to walk, then we learn to run, and a few of us might do hang gliding. Which I've never done yet. Or parasailing. But in the life with God is the exact opposite. Because you know what? Daily life in the wilderness is a weary long walk. Daily life in non-wilderness is a weary long walk. The only way we will walk is if we have soared first to get some perspective. It is perspective that gives meaning to the daily drudgery. 
You cannot avoid daily drugs. We have told you this many times. Life mostly is mundane. For three sermons on Saturday and Sunday, my spirit soared. There were six days of wilderness wandering before that. Every time. There was no shortcut to it. But it's soaring that gives meaning. Sometimes you will run. Mostly you will walk. So there's no better way to follow up a message like this than to invite the worship team to come on up who will help us to behold God now with poetry and music and an extended time of focus so we can continue beholding our God. But as they do, I want to leave you with the most staggering implication of all of this. We thought we'd seen God's greatness. We thought we'd seen it in, in a palm of a hand that can hold 320 million cubic miles. Or a span that can measure off a universe that is measured in billions of light years. Or, or the ability to scoop up 80,000, 80 million tons of dust in one in scoop. Or a knowledge that knows 175 million books instantly, totally and perfectly and then some. One that knows every single star in the universe by name. <laughs> if that's not big enough, you say, Sundar, what could be bigger? This is bigger. Imagine him now becoming an embryo. <laughs> Stooping to take into the womb of a 15-year-old Jewish girl at her prayers. <laughs> Growing up to be an ordinary human being. Emptied himself of all of his divinity and all these awesome powers. Allowing the people that he created to mock him, to spit upon him, to bruise him, to beat him. This is exactly what Pilate said and he brought them on and said, Behold the man. He could have said, Behold your God and he would have been absolutely right. The final unarguable proof that we have that he does know, that he does care, that he does have the power. Is that this awesome God of Isaiah 40 is the same as, as this bedraggled, beaten, crowned with a crown of thorns, lamb. Ultimately, the Lion of Judah and the Lamb of God are one and the same person. Let us worship Him. I want to give you two benedictions. First of all, for those of you who are experiencing wilderness stages in your life right now, you know, periodically all of us have had the experience of being awakened by a construction project outside our home. Jackhammers, hammering and whatnot, and things slowly taking shape. My blessing for you is that you will begin to hear the sounds of construction projects in your heart. You will hear the highway being built in your heart. And you will therefore be filled with anticipation for that day when the king will arrive. And you will get a glimpse of the glory of Jesus in your life. I want to bless you with perseverance until then. And then the second blessing is for your congreg- uh, congregation as a whole. That because of what you heard last week and this week together, that there would be both a seriousness and a joy simultaneously enveloping you every weekend as you gather together for worshipping this great God of ours. Go in Jesus' name.